Section twenty three of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karen Savage. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume four, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section twenty three. The Nail, by Pedro de Alarcón. Part two. Four. That winter I passed in Granada. One evening I had been invited to a great ball given by a prominent Spanish lady. As I was mounting the stairs of the magnificent residence, I was startled by the sight of a face which was easily distinguishable even in this crowd of southern beauties. It was she, my unknown, the mysterious woman of the stage-coach, in fact, number one, of whom I spoke at the beginning of this narrative. I made my way toward her, extending my hand in greeting. She recognized me at once. Senora, I said, I have kept my promise not to search for you. I did not know I would meet you here. Had I suspected it, I would have refrained from coming, for fear of annoying you. Now that I am here, tell me whether I may recognize you and talk to you. I see that you are vindictive, she answered graciously, putting her little hand in mine. But I forgive you. How are you? In truth, I don't know. My health—that is, the health of my soul, for you would not ask me about anything else in a ballroom depends upon the health of yours. What I mean is that I could only be happy if you are happy. May I ask if that wound of the heart which you told me about when I met you in the stage-coach has healed? You know as well as I do that there are wounds which never heal. With a graceful bow she turned away to speak to an acquaintance, and I asked a friend of mine who was passing, Can you tell me who that woman is? A South American, whose name is Mercedes de Merida Nueva. On the following day I paid a visit to the lady, who was residing at that time at the Hotel of the Seven Planets. The charming Mercedes received me as if I were an intimate friend, and invited me to walk with her through the wonderful Alhambra, and subsequently to dine with her. During the six hours we were together she spoke of many things, and as we always returned to the subject of disappointed love, I felt impelled to tell her the experience of my friend, Judge Sarko. She listened to me very attentively, and when I concluded she laughed and said, "'Let this be a lesson to you not to fall in love with women whom you do not know.' "'Do not think for a moment,' I answered, "'that I have invented this story. Oh, I don't doubt the truth of it. Perhaps there may be a mysterious woman in the Hotel of the Seven Planets of Granada, and perhaps she doesn't resemble the one your friend fell in love with in Sevilla. So far as I am concerned, there is no risk of my falling in love with any one, for I never speak three times to the same man.' Senora, that is the equivalent to telling me that you refuse to see me again. No. I only wish to inform you that I leave Granada to-morrow, and it is probable that we will never meet again. Never? You told me that during our memorable ride in the stage-coach, and you see that you are not a good prophet. I noticed that she had become very pale. She rose from the table abruptly, saying, Well, let us leave that to fate. For my part I repeat that I am bidding you an eternal farewell. She said these last words very solemnly, and then, with a graceful bow, turned and ascended the stairway which led to the upper story of the hotel. I confess that I was somewhat annoyed at the disdainful way in which she seemed to have terminated our acquaintance, yet this feeling was lost in the pity I felt for her when I noted her expression of suffering. We had met for the last time. Would to God that it had been for the last time! Man proposes, but God disposes. Five. A few days later, business affairs brought me to the town wherein resided my friend Judge Sarko. 
I found him as lonely and as sad as at the time of my last visit. He had been able to find out nothing about Blanca, but he could not forget her for a moment. Unquestionably this woman was his fate, his heaven or his hell, as the unfortunate man was accustomed to saying. We were soon to learn that his judicial superstition was to be fully justified. The evening of the day of my arrival we were seated in his office, reading the last reports of the police, who had been vainly attempting to trace Gabriela, when an officer entered and handed the judge a note, which read as follows. In the Hotel of the Lion there is a lady who wishes to speak to Judge Sarko. Who brought this? asked the judge. A servant. Who sent him? He gave no name. The judge looked thoughtfully at the smoke of his cigar for a few moments, and then said, A woman? To see me? I don't know why, but this thing frightens me. What do you think of it, Philip? That it is your duty as a judge to answer the call, of course. Perhaps she may be able to give you some information in regard to Gabriela. You are right, answered Sarko, rising. He put a revolver in his pocket, threw his cloak over his shoulders, and went out. Two hours later he returned. I saw at once by his face that some great happiness must have come to him. He put his arms about me and embraced me convulsively, exclaiming, "'Oh, dear friend, if you only knew! If you only knew!' "'But I don't know anything,' I answered. "'What on earth has happened to you? I am simply the happiest man in the world. But what is it? The note that called me to the hotel was from her. But from whom? From Gabriela Sahara? Oh, stop such nonsense! Who is thinking of those things now? It was she, I tell you, the other one. In the name of heaven, be calm and tell me whom you are talking about. Who could it be but Blanca, my love, my life? Blanca! I answered with astonishment. But the woman deceived you. Oh, no! That was all a foolish mistake on my part. Explain yourself. Listen. Blanca adores me. Oh, you think she does? Well, go on. When Blanca and I separated on the 15th of April, it was understood that we were to meet again on the 15th of May. Shortly after I left, she received a letter calling her to Madrid on urgent family business, and she did not expect me back until the 15th of May, so she remained in Madrid until the 1st. But as you know, I, in my impatience, could not wait, and returned fifteen days before I had agreed, and not finding her at the hotel, I jumped to the conclusion that she had deceived me, and I did not wait. I have gone through two years of torment and suffering, all due to my own stupidity. But she could have written you a letter. She said that she had forgotten the address. Ah, my poor friend, I exclaimed, I see that you are striving to convince yourself. Well, so much the better. Now, when does the marriage take place? I suppose that after so long and dark a night the sun of matrimony will rise radiant. Don't laugh, exclaimed Sarko. You shall be my best man. With much pleasure. Man proposes but God disposes. We were still seated in the library chatting together, when there came a knock at the door. It was about two o'clock in the morning. The judge and I were both startled, but we could not have told why. The servant opened the door, and a moment later a man dashed into the library so breathless from hard running that he could scarcely speak. "'Good news, judge! Grand news!' he said when he recovered breath. "'We have won!' The man was the prosecuting attorney. "'Explain yourself, my dear friend,' said the judge, motioning him to a chair. "'What remarkable occurrence could have brought you hither in such haste, and at this hour of the morning?' "'We have arrested Gabriela Sahara.' "'Arrested her?' exclaimed the judge joyfully. "'Yes, sir, we have her. One of our detectives has been following her for a month. He has caught her, and she is now locked up in a cell of the prison.' "'Then let us go there at once,' exclaimed the judge. "'We will interrogate her to-night. Do me the favour to notify my secretary.' Owing to the gravity of the case, you yourself must be present. 
Also notify the guard who has charge of the head of Señor Romeral. It has been my opinion from the beginning that this criminal woman would not dare deny the horrible murder when she was confronted with the evidence of her crime. And so far as you are concerned, said the judge, turning to me, I will appoint you assistant secretary, so that you can be present without violating the law. I did not answer. A horrible suspicion had been growing within me, a suspicion which, like some infernal animal, was tearing at my heart with claws of steel. Could Gabriela and Blanca be one and the same? I turned to the assistant district attorney. "'By the way,' I asked, "'where was Gabriela when she was arrested?' "'In the Hotel of the Lion.' My suffering was frightful, but I could say nothing, do nothing, without compromising the judge. Besides, I was not sure. Even if I were positive that Gabriela and Blanca were the same person, what could my unfortunate friend do? Feign a sudden illness? Flee the country? My only way was to keep silent, and let God work it out in his own way. The orders of the judge had already been communicated to the chief of police and the warden of the prison. Even at this hour the news had spread throughout the city, and idlers were gathering to see the rich and beautiful woman who would ascend the scaffold. I still clung to the slender hope that Gabriela and Blanca were not the same person. But when I went toward the prison I staggered like a drunken man, and was compelled to lean upon the shoulder of one of the officials, who asked me anxiously if I were ill. 6. We arrived at the prison at four o'clock in the morning. The large reception-room was brilliantly lighted. The guard, holding a black box in which was the skull of Señor Romeral, was awaiting us. The judge took his seat at the head of the long table, the prosecuting attorney sat on his right, and the chief of police stood by with arms folded. I and the secretary sat on the left of the judge. A number of police officers and detectives were standing near the door. The judge touched his bell and said to the warden, "'Bring in Doña Gabriela Sara.' I felt as if I were dying, and instead of looking at the door, I looked at the judge, to see if I could read in his face the solution of this frightful problem. I saw him turn livid and clutch his throat with both hands, as if to stop a cry of agony, and then he turned to me with a look of infinite supplication. "'Keep quiet,' I whispered, putting my finger on my lips, and then I added, "'I knew it.' The unfortunate man arose from his chair. "'Judge!' I exclaimed and in that one word I conveyed to him the full sense of his duty, and of the dangers which surrounded him. He controlled himself, and resumed his seat, but were it not for the light in his eyes, he might have been taken for a dead man. Yes, the man was dead, only the judge lived. When I had convinced myself of this, I turned and looked at the accused. Good God! Gabriela Sara was not only Blanca, the woman my friend so deeply loved, but she was also the woman I had met in the stagecoach, and subsequently at Granada, the beautiful South American Mercedes. All these fantastic women had now merged into one, the real one who stood before us, accused of the murder of her husband, and who had been condemned to die. There was still a chance to prove herself innocent. Could she do it? This was my one supreme hope, as it was that of my poor friend. Gabriela—we will call her now by her real name— was deathly pale, but apparently calm. Was she trusting to her innocence, or to the weakness of the judge? Our doubts were soon solved. Up to that moment the accused had looked at no one but the judge. I did not know whether she desired to encourage him, or menace him, or to tell him that his Blanca could not be an assassin. But noting the impassibility of the magistrate, and that his face was as expressionless as that of a corpse, she turned to the others, as if seeking help from them. Then her eyes fell upon me, and she blushed slightly. 
The judge now seemed to awaken from his stupor, and asked in a harsh voice, "'What is your name?' "'Gabriela Sahara, widow of Romeral,' answered the accused in a soft voice. Sarko trembled. He had just learned that his Blanca had never existed. She told him so herself, she who only three hours before had consented to become his wife. Fortunately no one was looking at the judge, all eyes being fixed upon Gabriela, whose marvellous beauty and quiet demeanour carried to all an almost irresistible conviction of her innocence. The judge recovered himself, and then, like a man who was staking more than life upon the cast of a die, he ordered the guard to open the black box. "'Madam,' said the judge sternly, his eyes seeming to dart flames, "'approach and tell me whether you recognise this head.' At a signal from the judge, the guard opened the black box, and lifted out the skull. A cry of mortal agony rang through that room. One could not tell whether it was of fear or of madness. The woman shrank back, her eyes dilating with terror, and screamed, "'Alfonso! Alfonso!' Then she seemed to fall into a stupor. All turned to the judge, murmuring, "'She is guilty beyond a doubt.' "'Do you recognize the nail which deprived your husband of life?' said the judge, arising from his chair, looking like a corpse rising from the grave. "'Yes, sir,' answered Gabriela mechanically. "'That is to say, you admit that you assassinated your husband?' asked the judge, in a voice that trembled with his great suffering. "'Sir,' answered the accused, "'I do not care to live any more. But before I die I would like to make a statement.' The judge fell back in his chair, and then asked me by a look, what is she going to say? I myself was almost stupefied by fear. Gabriela stood before them, her hands clasped, and a faraway look in her large, dark eyes. "'I am going to confess,' she said, "'and my confession will be my defence, although it will not be sufficient to save me from the scaffold. Listen to me, all of you. Why deny that which is self-evident? I was alone with my husband when he died. The servants and the doctor have testified to this.' Hence only I could have killed him. Yes, I committed the crime, but another man forced me to do it." The judge trembled when he heard these words, but dominating his emotion he asked courageously, "'The name of that man, madam. Tell us at once the name of the scoundrel.' Gabriela looked at the judge with an expression of infinite love, as a mother would look at the child she worshipped, and answered, "'By a single word I could drag this man into the depths with me, but I will not.' No one shall ever know his name, for he has loved me, and I love him. Yes, I love him, although I know he will do nothing to save me." The judge half rose from his chair, and extended his hands beseechingly, but she looked at him as if to say, "'Be careful. You will betray yourself, and it will do no good.' He sank back into his chair, and Gabriela continued her story in a quiet, firm voice. "'I was forced to marry a man I hated. I hated him more after I married him than I did before. I lived three years in martyrdom. One day there came into my life a man whom I loved. He demanded that I should marry him. He asked me to fly with him to a heaven of happiness and love. He was a man of exceptional character, high and noble, whose only fault was that he loved me too much. Had I told him, I have deceived you, I am not a widow, my husband is living, he would have left me at once. I invented a thousand excuses, but he always answered, "'Be my wife.' What could I do? I was bound to a man of the vilest character and habits, whom I loathed. Well, I killed this man, believing that I was committing an act of justice. And God punished me, for my lover abandoned me. 
and now I am very, very tired of life, and all I ask of you is that death may come as quickly as possible." Gabriela stopped speaking. The judge had buried his face in his hands, as if he were thinking, but I could see he was shaking like an epileptic. "'Your Honour,' repeated Gabriela, "'grant my request that I may die soon.' The judge made a sign to the guards to remove the prisoner. Before she followed them, she gave me a terrible look, in which there was more of pride than of repentance. I do not wish to enter into details of the condition of the judge during the following day. In the great emotional struggle which took place, the officer of the law conquered the man, and he confirmed the sentence of death. On the following day the papers were sent to the Court of Appeals, and then Sarko came to me and said, Wait here until I return. Take care of this unfortunate woman, but do not visit her, for your presence would humiliate instead of consoling her. Do not ask me whither I am going, and do not think that I am going to commit the very foolish act of taking my own life. Farewell, and forgive me all the worry I have caused you." Twenty days later the Court of Appeals confirmed the sentence, and Gabriela Saara was placed in the death-cell. The morning of the day fixed for the execution came, and still the judge had not returned. The scaffold had been erected in the centre of the square, and an enormous crowd had gathered. I stood by the door of the prison, for, while I had obeyed the wish of my friend that I should not call on Gabriela in her prison, I believed it my duty to represent him in that supreme moment, and accompany the woman he had loved to the foot of the scaffold. When she appeared, surrounded by her guards, I hardly recognized her. She had grown very thin, and seemed hardly to have the strength to lift to her lips the small crucifix she carried in her hand. "'I am here, Senora. Can I be of service to you?' I asked her as she passed by me. She raised her deep, sunken eyes to mine, and when she recognized me she exclaimed, "'Oh, thanks! Thanks! This is a great consolation for me in my last hour of life. Father,' she added, turning to the priest who stood beside her, "'may I speak a few words to this generous friend?' "'Yes, my daughter,' answered the venerable minister. Then Gabriela asked me, "'Where is he?' "'He is absent. May God bless him and make him happy. When you see him, ask him to forgive me, even as I believe God has already forgiven me. Tell him I love him yet, although this love is the cause of my death." We had arrived at the foot of the scaffold stairway, where I was compelled to leave her. A tear, perhaps the last one there was in that suffering heart, rolled down her cheek. Once more she said, "'Tell him that I died blessing him.' Suddenly there came a roar like that of thunder. The mass of people swayed, shouted, danced, laughed like maniacs, and above all this tumult one word rang out clearly, pardoned. Pardoned! At the entrance to the square appeared a man on horseback, galloping madly toward the scaffold. In his hand he waved a white handkerchief, and his voice rang high above the clamour of the crowd. Pardoned! Pardoned! It was the judge. Reining up his foaming horse at the foot of the scaffold, he extended a paper to the chief of police. Gabriela, who had already mounted some of the steps, turned and gave the judge a look of infinite love and gratitude. "'God bless you!' she exclaimed and then fell senseless. As soon as the signatures and seals upon the document had been verified by the authorities, the priest and the judge rushed to the accused to undo the cords which bound her hands and arms, and to revive her. All their efforts were useless, however. Gabriela Saara was dead. End of section 23